2: What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny of El-Jabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm looking at goodnews.com or goodnewshub.com.
0: Yeah. Goodnews.com actually brings you to mybible.com. I actually tried My it earlier. <laughs> huh.
2: I, I can see where it can go to the good news. But there was a bit that we used to do on this show. We haven't done it in a long time, probably two years where we would go on goodnews.com whenever we were talking about a very dark subject and we would try to cheer ourselves up <laughs> and I'm looking at the good news from goodnews.com goodnewshub.com goodnewshub.com sorry, first story huge fossil of dinosaur may be the largest found in Europe
0: that could be kind of cool is that cool? Wonder what
2: kind of dinosaur it is. Is that good news? The thing is, though, is that dinosaurs don't exist. It's a big lie. Right. It's a big conspiracy. I mean, come on. You really believe that there were giant lizards, Danny?
0: Yes, I do. So
2: this is just pure propaganda. Uh, <laughs> fake news. Good news hub, I would call it the fake news hub or the fake history hub. <laughs> what else do we got here? We have... See Freddie Mercury born first episode of Star Trek. Okay, that's a full like, no, compilation of stories. History. Oh, Here's one: male dolphins have wingmen. Scientists <laughs> <to> say. <laughs> Do you mean they have rape buddies? Yeah, because no, they everyone have rape knows that dolphins, male dolphins, they are rapist. Yeah, they so can everyone be. knows that so they have mm-hmm. you know uh you know cohorts in their uh you know criminal rape sessions so yeah not exactly good news from goodnewshub.com let's see what else do we got so we got penguin with foot condition has shoes custom orthopedic shoes well that's just poorly written yeah, but so what they made uh shoes for a penguin who had bad feet yeah and you know what? We you know who could really use orthopedic shoes? Who? Not a fucking penguin. <laughs> <laughs> there are small, shriveled up women who are in like former Soviet states who are wearing the same shoes that they had when they were like 15 years old. I'm sure that they could use
0: orthopedics, but no. We have
2: to give them to a penguin.
0: Also, it kind of just goes against, like, the Darwin thing. Like, what if that penguin has a, like, congenital condition, right? That he has bad feet. And then he goes and passes on those genes and has more penguin babies with bad feet. Now we got to make more shoes. You know who this benefits? The Orthopedic Shoe Company. This is all about the money, Henry. All about the money. And you would say that
2: it would benefit the polar bears, but polar bears do not live in Antarctica. Nope. They do not. But I was just thinking that until I said that. Until the words anyway, came This out penguin of my mouth actually happens realizes. to live in a
0: zoo, so. <laughs> oh,
2: okay. Well, fuck him then. <laughs> he lives in a hotel, basically. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, what else do we got? 15 year old rescue dog adopted after being returned after 12 years. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I guess that's nice. Um, all right. Goodnews.com or goodnew- thegoodnewshub.com. Um, I guess you can look at it whenever you are uh, feeling down. (laughs) Now, um, so I guess today, the reason why we open up is because we are talking about a very boring geopolitical subject. What's in the news? And that is Russia. And something that we've been talking about for a while, and we've been referencing this for a long time, is this, this RAND paper. So it's called... Extending Russia title is competing from an ad- advantageous ground. So, um, you know, the RAND organization is a think tank funded by the U.S. government. And what they do is that they write these research papers. And, you know, these research papers can range from, you know, a technology question to a criminal justice question to a uh, question on health care. But their main MO is national security. Um, they were founded during World War II uh, to do like rocket research, I believe. Their main point of existence was to ensure that the the U.S. or the Allies wouldn't fall too far behind anyone else in terms of military technology. And then they, you know, got into things like game theory and, and like nuclear war research. And now, you know, they still write policy papers, and the Pentagon largely funds them. So. They have a paper, which should have been called "Overextending Russia," because that, I think that would be a more accurate title. But oh, it's going to 300- give an, a
0: more accurate subtitle. So yeah. the competing from advantageous ground is should be "Overextending Russia." I have the high ground, <laughs> Anakin. I
2: have the high ground. It's over. Um, okay, it's a three hundred fifty-page document. It outlines um, things that the U.S. government could do to maybe weaken Russia. The reason why I say maybe is because there's risk disclaimers and there's pros and cons for everything that they list. So there are things that, I mean, the U.S. could think about or or they could possibly do that would put Russia in a bad situation. Just to give you kind of a sense of what you're going to find here, the research questions are, what are Russia's greatest anxieties and vulnerabilities? And... Um, in what ways can these anxieties and vulnerabilities be exploited and extended to Russia? And what are the costs and risks associated with each option? And what are the prospects of success? So, what's interesting about this is that there's um, it, it's it's providing scenarios, but it's also providing risk models. So, you know, if we pursue X, Y, Z policy, what is the likelihood of this working? Uh, and B you know what would be the potential blowback if we did this and uh, when we were talking to Scott a couple of weeks ago he was at he said the Biden team is basically pursuing this but they're just they just tossed out all the you know the 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 risk disclaimers in the garbage they're just completely not following it but some of the things it it, it does seem very similar to you know what the policy is right now do we know if the you know the biden team or the state department or whoever is like sitting down and studying this paper or if it's had this like major influence in the government we don't know we 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 honestly don't know if this is like something that's that's officially part of their policy i'm sure that it's kind of a common theme around washington or it has been a common um idea around washington the things that are written in this paper so i don't think it's a coincidence in that regard. But, I mean, we don't know, you know, how closely that they're following this paper. Because if they were actually following this paper, if they were really pursuing all the policies that this RAND paper says, they probably wouldn't be doing a lot of the things that they're doing now. So I'm not sure how big of an influence there is, but it does point out a lot of interesting ideas. Now, the paper is broken down into two parts. And the first part describes the, the vulnerabilities of Russia. And for, for each vulnerability, there's a, there's a table that outlines the strategic exploitability by the U.S., potential cost to the Russian government if the U.S. Uh, uh, executes a strategy. There is a potential impact on Russia, Russian population and then potential blowback to the U.S. and its allies from this uh, stated strategy. And in the second part of the paper, it outlines different measures that the U.S. can take. So it's broken down into economic, geopolitical, ideological, and informational air and space measures, maritime measures, and then um, land and, and multi-domain measures. So it breaks it down to economic policy and uh, you know what we can do in terms of advancing our military and you know going into a arms race with them and all these measures they're they're rated by the benefit the cost and risk and then the likelihood of success and they're they're given scores from from low to medium to high and this is essentially you know your your scenario uh your your risk model when looking at these different policies and the major conclusion of this paper is that russia's greatest weakness is its economy which i think everyone thought the russian economy was extremely fragile and that it, it it should have fallen apart by now so i'll give you the table and i'll read out what this rand paper says would be the the measures to overextend Russia in terms in in the economic capacity. And there's the first one is hinder petroleum exports. Reduce natural gas exports and hinder pipelines. Impose sanctions. And enhance Russian brain drain. Which means attract skilled labor out of the Russian economy but the first one which i which i found interesting was you know hinder petroleum experts so the benefits are high the costs and risks are low and then the likelihood of success is high and what this advocates is it's it's um essentially it's really advocating for the US to actually increase Production of of uh, natural gas as well as oil to increase energy production, and you know, that will help stress the Russian economy. And you know the goal here is by increasing the world supply, it would depress global prices, and it would limit Russian revenue. And Russia has a lot of a lot of welfare programs. You know it it would inhibit or it would hurt their different pensions programs or military spending and this was the most low risk thing that the US that the rand paper says that the that the US could do is just to increase their petroleum exports.
0: Yeah, so I actually did a little bit of research on this one in particular because I was interested and I think this this kind of um, is is salient in 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 the in the news right now because you know, price of the pump always seems to be you know, uh, a talking point, especially with like midterms coming around. So I wanted to look into this one and um, uh, learn some stuff. So if you remember back in March when uh, the gas prices were crazy high uh, and you started seeing those, um, you know, you remember those Biden stickers uh, that they would put on the gas pumps that said, like, I did that. (laughs) Do you remember that, Henry? Yeah, It was was an interesting little uh, uh, memed uh, time of, of the year. And, uh, I, I bring let's that up. Go Brandon. It, <laughs> let's go. Brand, dark Brandon. No. Um, I, I, bring that up because, you know, this is, this is being talked about today. Um, and, you know, and Biden has been going around over the summer, you know, talking about how good of a job that they've been doing by increasing, um, U.S. Uh, oil exports um, uh, production, I should say, and and also releasing really strategic reserves as as reasons why the gas prices have have been coming down. But now it looks like it's turning around. It might bite them in the ass. Um, so I mean, at that time, back in March, you know, that there was a fear that the U.S. or or you know its allies would uh, try to cut Russia out of the global oil market with sanctions, and you know that caused the gas prices to skyrocket because. You know, well, Russia produces a lot of gas. You know, they, they just do. Um, so if you take that much off the market, it's going to make everything go crazy expensive. So to mitigate this, uh, the Biden administration had worked out uh, some deals with uh, U.S. oil companies to try and ramp up production to help stabilize those oil prices and also shelter the U.S. from any blowback that might happen or was happening even if they didn't do anything. But... Um, bunch of uh, U.S. companies committed to it. So for example, Chevron committed to ramping up their production by 60,000 ba- barrels a day. Uh, Exxon did even more. Uh, they committed to ramping up 100,000 barrels a day. Um, and uh, this was on top of a re- already really big ramp up last year that they did where they got to 460,000 barrels a day. Uh, in total, across all of the like U.S. oil and, and uh, producing companies, uh, earlier this year, the U.S. was producing like 11.6 million barrels a day and that there were expectations that by the end of the year uh, that the U.S. would add an extra million barrels per day. Huge, huge you know, uh, production gains. I'm sure anyone and everyone who you know, bets on the stock market was probably very interested in those prospects. But uh, here's the thing. While those ramp-ups are really big... Russia still produces 5 million barrels a day, which is not a small amount. And locking them out in any meaningful way will have major impacts on global oil prices. Sometimes, you know, just to belabor the point, even just the idea or the whisper that we would lock them out has an impact on global oil uh, uh, prices. So it's, you know, it's a pretty big deal. uh, And it's a very sensitive topic. So To do more, uh, the Biden administration started opening up our strategic reserve of oil uh, to basically put more oil into the market, specifically the U.S. market, um, to kind of ease the pain and keep prices low for the consumers. Um, Back in March, they announced uh, a release of like 30 million barrels. But the thing about that is that that's only the equivalent of like two days worth of consumption for the U.S., 30 million barrels. Um, so John Hess, the CEO of Hess, had said at that time that you know in order to make an impact that we needed to release at least 120 million barrels at least two times, so over a two-month span, so 240 million barrels total, and hint at the prospect of more to come down the pipeline in order to make any meaningful impact on the price of oil. I want you to take that with a grain of salt. This is coming from an oil executive who has a vested interest in, you know, uh, uh, removing the U.S. Uh, strategic reserve so that they have to come up, come back and buy more. Um, but you know, these are his thoughts. Apparently, thirty million barrels of oil being released onto the market doesn't really make an impact, and it didn't. He was right in that respect. You know, so flash forward to earlier this month, OPEC, the uh, uh, oil producing company uh, countries uh, organization. Um, they announce a production cut of two million barrels a day. So, to back up and and help keep score at home, this cut that OPEC wants to do and is doing basically undercuts all of the production gains that the U.S. companies, the U.S. oil companies, have committed to already. So we're basically back at square one. Um, so that's not a great prospect for price of oil, you know, and uh, we're already starting to see that creep up a little bit. But of course, the Biden administration is trying to work out a deal with OPEC. uh, And here's how that deal goes. So the US needs to buy up oil in order to fill up their strategic reserves because they've been releasing a bunch this year. Uh, And they're trying to work out a deal where they're going to buy more oil and specifically from OPEC countries at a fixed rate today. Like whatever it costs today, that's what they're going to buy it at over uh, a period of time. What that means is that those countries can go ahead and start ramping up their oil production, which would thus decrease the price of oil because they'll guarantee a high rate on the sale to the U S reserves. Right? So it's like locking in a good price now. And then in return, they ramp up their production so that, you know, oil prices go down for everyone. Um, it's an interesting option. Uh, I just don't know that Saudi Arabia specifically is going to buy into it because they don't seem to have been playing ball uh, about it. They did like some you know virtue signaling where they reduced by a hundred K barrels a day back in like the summer. Uh, they don't seem to be playing nicely with the Biden administration unfortunately but um, in the meantime, Biden is releasing an additional 10 million barrels from the reserve in November. but again, that's less than one day's worth of us consumption so it's really not going to make a big difference i guess all of this is a long-winded way of me saying that i'm not so certain that the rand expectation of low risk for hindering petroleum exports is accurate because uh, specifically because of the war in ukraine uh, it created these conditions where if you know we're sanctioning russia or even just the idea of cutting them out of the market is increasing the cost of oil rather than decreasing the cost of oil, so I don't know. I just found that interesting.
2: Yeah, and um, it's interesting that the Saudis aren't really playing ball with with the U.S., um, which I'm actually really not surprised about. They don't like high oil, uh, o-
0: excuse me, low oil prices. Saudi no, Arabia. No way would they want. They want to make money and they want well, to hold on to as much oil in the dirt as possible. Milk it for as much as it's worth for as long as possible. Again, yeah, I mean at sense. times.
2: Yeah, at times they're going to increase. I mean they're a swing producer, or you know they are the swing producer in the world where you know the the price of oil largely depends on how much they're choosing to produce or not produce. You know they're a welfare state, so I mean they provide free health care, they provide housing subsidies, they provide. Subsidies on water, electricity, and when I say the healthcare, the type of healthcare that the Saudis provide are actually it's actually really good. For example, I was reading, you know, this story about this guy who was born with um with a he had a brain tumor, or he developed a brain tumor when he was older, and the Saudi government, you know, they didn't have the the uh, doctors in, in Saudi Arabia who are specialists in this in this uh, specific cancerous tumor in this guy's brain. And they sent him to Austria where there was an expert and he got treatment there. And that was all uh, paid for by the Saudi government. So it's not only that they, they provide, you know, welfare, they actually provide like super good benefits. And they need this because, I mean, essentially, I mean, they're a monarchy, you know, it's if you keep the people happy, then... You know people are not going to mind living in a in a monarchy in a you know essentially a a rule by committee type system with the saudi saudi monarchy it's not even really a rule by committee anymore with with the rise of mbs who's who's more of a i guess the de facto or you know he is the crown prince and the de facto leader but uh the point i'm trying to make is that if their welfare spigots Dry up, or if there's a standard of living that decreases, then that just creates larger instability within the government or within that country. Do, do you know why Saudi women were allowed to drive? So maybe there was a culture shift, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was a culture shift, but one of the drivers behind this is because people didn't want to pay for drivers anymore. Because if your wife can't drive, then you have to pay for a driver. So you would need wherever she wanted to go, you would have to have a driver that would drive them there and back. That was one of the main reasons why that policy was, was, was popular among the, pub- the public. Because it would just reduce people's like living expenditures if women were allowed to drive for themselves. So that was one of the big, um, you know, reasons that kind of pushed that. That one of the things that was behind the scenes or in the background of pushing those reforms. Now, um, another thing that you have to add to this is that MBS and the current government in Saudi Arabia, they don't really they, they don't get along with Biden, and. It may be, I mean, you can jump to uh, different conclusions or you can have different takes on this. I think you could see it as in, you know, MBS was kind of a Trump guy where uh, Trump's team, Jared Kushner had had actually reached out to them uh, very early on into their presidency. And and, um, one of the reasons why it was his first trip to, to Saudi Arabia, his first uh, presidential trip was to Saudi Arabia uh, was because they were working really hard with them to build a good relationship with them. Um, I've spoken to experts on Sa- Saudi Arabia that said that the Trump team went as far as identifying him and, and uh, pushing him up in some regard. I'm not sure exactly how you would do that in, in those committees and how you would uh, break the line of secession in those monarchies. Because uh, that was a huge move when you think about it. Because uh, they have never, they had never broken the line of secession from uncle to son. It, the, the Saudi line of secession has never been from father to son. It's always been from brother to brother to brother to brother. So that's a huge move and a huge break away from the status quo or tradition. So I'm not entirely convinced that's true. but Maybe, maybe it absolutely is. But um, they got along with him. Uh, well, and I'm not saying it's you know MBS feels betrayed because his guy's not there, but he definitely doesn't like the uh, the current Democrats who are in charge, and he's not. I don't think they're they're willing to um, really go along with their policies at a whim. Like I wouldn't be surprised if MBS wanted that Biden to lose in the midterms, or not the Democrats to lose in the midterms so you know that could be a reason i'm not sure i'm just throwing that idea out there that 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 may be a motivation that is in the background of these decisions but all in all i think it's more of just you know this doesn't make sense for for us and we're not going to profit off of it so we're not we're not coming in and being that swing producer you guys fucked up by doing this in the first place i think that's their their general attitude but um to pull this back to, to uh, you know, oil-related policy, another thing that's listed here is to reduce natural gas exports and hinder pipelines. So when I say reduce natural gas exports, it means finding ways to reduce Russia's gas exports. And they have these uh, ranked out. So benefits high cost and risk medium and then likelihood of success medium and what Rand is saying here is to increase Europe's ability to import gas from from other suppliers than Russia because everyone knows Russia is the main EU supplier of crude oil uh, natural gas and, and, uh, and, uh, and fossil fuels and uh, I think 2020 uh the eu got 29% of their oil from russia and uh 43% of their natural gas from russia and uh you know gas is, is a is a way bigger problem than oil for the eu the the big issue is that there's really not that many alternatives there's there's really hand, there's, there's a handful of significant gas exporters you know besides russia i mean how i mean you can kind of count them with your with your two hands as far as like significant uh natural uh, l n g exporters you know there's there's other than russia there's like the u s canada uh norway Qatar, um i think algeria and then australia, australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um i think Nigeria as well but not as you know as as, as relevant but i mean the big ones are Besides Russia, are the U.S., Canada, and Norway, right, and then Australia has has uh some mines and and I know Italy gets their uh it's been getting their gas from Algeria, but here are why don't you read the risks because I'm going to take a sip of water.
0: Yeah, for sure, um and and we'll probably have to talk about a, a recent current event after talking about these risks here, but um the risks that were outlined in the Iran paper. Uh, are firstly uh, that it could redu- lower the reliability of gas supplies to Europe. I think this one's an obvious risk, right? If you, uh, Europe is pretty dependent on, um, on Russian natural gas. Uh, so the, it, it reads The ongoing dispute over whether to construct the Nord's two, Nord Stream 2 pipeline illustrates this. Some in the West argue. That Russia should be forced to continue to ship gas through Ukraine, uh, the victim of Russian aggression, so that Ukraine can earn up to $2 billion a year in transit fees. But others uh, argue that Ukrainian siphoning and periodic gas price disputes with Russia have made this route less than reliable for both Russia and its European customers. Moreover, U.S. policy has long favored more sources of supply and export routes to make the global en- energy market more competitive and resilient. So, you know, just to unpack that a little bit, I actually didn't know about some of the plans to to try and force Russia to, to send their gas through Ukraine. Um, you know, that's an interesting prospect. I also didn't know that Ukraine was siphoning some of that gas. So a little f- fascinating tidbit of information. Um So the second thing that's on the list of, of risks there is that alternative gas suppliers are more expensive in terms of infrastructure costs and gas prices. Uh, and so it reads, if government subsidizes the infrastructure, they will have to reduce expenditures from other purposes or raise taxes, both of which might create a drag on the economy. So basically what they're saying is, you know, if if you... In order to get this done from different suppliers, we have to set up new pipelines and new infrastructure to get that done. You know, um, places like Germany have you know gas ports uh, where they can uh, uh, unload like U.S. natural gas, but they'd have to make more of them and and make them in more places. And so somebody has to pay for all that, and ultimately, what they're saying is that the economy is going to ultimately pay for it, right? either because they raised taxes and now people don't have enough money to buy things or, you know, that they have to cut budget from other things that might be important as well. So either way, you know, could be costly. And the third and last one here, and this is the one that I'm hoping that we can chat more about, is is that one of the downsides of working to limit Russian export of uh, natural gas or other, or other energy materials is that... Um, the dependence of Russia on the Western markets is kind of a deterrence, right? So this access would likely be cut in the event of an escalation, uh, as we have seen with the pipeline incident that I want to talk about a bit. So it reads, Cutting Russian access to Western markets in peacetime reduces the scale of further cuts uh, that would result from the conflict, and thus the deterrent effect of such a threat. This would argue for restraining the growth of Western purchases from Russia rather than reducing them. Western credits to Eastern Bloc countries in the 1980s present an analogous situation. The deteriorating economic conditions of those countries and the benefits they gained through Western loans were viewed by some in the West as providing leverage over future developments in the region. region. So basically what we're saying is that this is a deterrent that we have. Right, this is a, a stick that we can wave uh, at Russia to cut off the um, to cut off the natural gas because they're dependent on on the sale of natural gas to power many parts of their economy. So if we relinqu- if we play that card, we no longer have that card, right? And uh, you know it, it it reduces our leverage in that respect. and And I wanted to talk about it because I don't think we've like in, in any great detail. Uh, spoken about the the gas leak in Nord Stream 1, but, I mean, this kind of already happens, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we haven't talked
2: about it. And the reason why we really haven't had time to bring it up, to be completely honest, we talked about it with Scott for a little bit, but not really in great detail. Uh, I basically have the same position as Scott where I think the United States did it. But there's no proof. And right. now now the, I guess there's some funky stuff going on with the, with the investigations where Sweden is refusing to disclose information about their investigation to Germany because it's a national security concern. So I, I mean, what else could and, that be? You know, if it was Russia, if they joining if these, in NATO, <laughs> if these people, if these people found out it was, if it was, uh, yeah, exactly. That is a national security concern because it would complicate a pipeline that was, you know, in our waters was destroyed by the military alliance that we're joining. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's national. If we say something, we might be kicked out. It, it's. It's really it's really bizarre. I uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised that this. I was I was surprised that there was an attempt on on Nord Stream, or there there was there not just an attempt, there was a successful attempt on both of the pipelines. And it's really interesting to see these governments not disclose what the like what their investigations are saying because if it was Russia you know for a fact everyone would be like this would be the top page of every single newspaper in the world it would it would it would extend just like Russia blew you know sabotage the pipeline but you can just kind of imagine all the the all the how the press would spin this I bet that they would dedicate like pages of saying it's like bioterrorism or aqua-terrorism or w- whatever you would call it by, you know, Some polluting the, the waters of, of the North Atlantic mm-hmm. um, and, you know, causing like a uh, ecological disaster there. I could see the press spinning it like that, but, you know, it would be all types of stories about oh, they're, they're engaging in, in uh, gas blackmail and, uh,
0: you know, all these crazy things, but it's well um, I mean one one point to kind of like to make that a little bit more complicated is that we're not seeing the opposite either. Right? We're not seeing like a big push from you know the media to try and blame Russia either.
2: Yeah, because they because it's just so obvious. Like I don't think right? there's anyone I don't there's there's really no But don't you think that the US would at
0: believe. least try to make that story like if they did it, let's let's assume that they did it, right? Don't you think they would try and divert some of that? you know, uh, attention away from themselves and towards Russia instead, like try to spin it as a way to, you know, lie us into a new war? <laughs> no, I don't think they would say anything because it's just so it's so obvious.
2: It's so obvious that they did it. Like the policy has been, we're, we're going to cut Germany off from, from Nord Stream if, if, um, if we have to. And people keep on playing the clip of Biden saying like, there's going to be no Nord Stream if Russia invades Ukraine. And Blinken saying that there's like strategic advantages of or no, there's strategic opportunities now since since uh, since Nord Stream one and two have been destroyed.
0: What? Because now we can sell liquid
2: liquefied yeah, natural gas. Yeah, he, he basically said that. So, mm-hmm. oh, and uh, Ann Applebaum, the uh, super Russia hawk historian, um, I forget what she does right now, but she's a writer. Or I think the Atlantic and um, you know she writes you know history books about how Russia's the worst place in the world and you know how they're I've gone too far she's never said that they're genetically evil but it's just it just misses that line her husband is a, a Polish diplomat and when it happened her husband said thank He posted a picture on Twitter saying thank you U.S. Her her husband, who is like a real crazy Russia hawk, like a Polish Russia hawk, saying thank you, like thank you, no, thank you, the United States, um, wow. like cheering it on. So it's it's well, ever it's it's so blatantly obvious that it's best to just ignore it because if you just like ask like two questions, you can kind of uncover that this is not this is something that hurts Russia doesn't not help Russia at all. It reduces their their ability to have leverage on Germany. It reduces the ability to um to of diplomacy through um, you know negotiations regarding you know energy supplies. It's just there's no benefit to Russia. Russia's not going to destroy their own infrastructure that they spent billions, billions and billions of dollars on. It's crazy how Germany is. Just basically a conquered nation, like I can just see Germany be like, "But what might bite?" But I'm shut up. You're a conquered people. We conquered you. Shut up. Get in the room. You want to be? You want to be East Germany again? <laughs> you're lucky that we didn't take out more cities in Dresden,
0: um, <laughs> dude. I mean, it, it, it's true. You're, what you're saying is right, but also they you know to to Scott's point on our last show we kind of, they kind of threw out the risks here because now we don't have that as a strategic deterrent against Russia now they there is no pipeline right so yeah we're not going to have that they they're, they're going to have to explore other ways to sell that natural gas you know they might go through turkey they might go through a few other a few other means but you know it's going to make it more expensive the europeans are going to suffer for it you know maybe some us companies will make some money on it but you know there's there's not a whole lot of benefit out of this well there's nothing else that we could really like there's really how much more pressure
2: can we put on russia that we haven't put on them already well we can talk about some more of these points that the rand are <laughs> yeah told. i guess we i guess we can talk about more of these points but yeah i guess i guess the, the the ultimate point about the pipeline is that it's a good thing when russia and germany are in good terms because the yeah. opposite is usually horrible Right. When Russia and Germany go to war, it's the worst thing to ever happen ever. Both right. times. Both times when Russia and Germany went to war, it was the worst thing that ever had happened in the history of, of the world. The first World War I, the, the aftermath of that brought in, you know, the two most horrible governments in Europe ever, with, with Nazi Germany and, and the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, the war between Germany and, and in Russia not only brought tens of millions of people uh, to their graves, but it also, you know, it's, it opened up the doors for the Soviet Union to invade pretty much all of Eastern Europe. And, you know, these people were living in just absolute destitute for so many years. It's the worst thing that had ever happened, World War II, when Russia and, Ru- when Russia and Germany fought each other anything that we can do to keep these people on good terms and and uh not fighting each other i think is a is a big plus yeah so i hear that so um okay so next point in the economic realm impose sanctions so this is an interesting one because it scores high on everything so it's high benefits uh cost and risk it scores high and likelihood of success equals high. So, I mean, I would have thought this. I Honestly, I'm somebody who thought that the Russian economy, I think the Russian economy is going to have a really nasty recession, uh, 2022, 2023. Like, they're going to have a really nasty. Uh, a lot of these sanctioned impacts are going to hit them really hard next year. But right now, they're not as bad as what people were hoping they were. Mm-hmm. Um basically the paper goes into uh you know how deeper sanctions they're going to degrade the russian economy um especially but in order for them to to degrade the economy they have to be uh multilateral and the problem is that the effectiveness it's it's going to depend on other countries joining in so right now we have like west the western europe and then we have you know, the United States, but for the most part, you know, BRICS countries and, and, uh, the global South for that matter, they're not joining in on the sanctions. And, you know, Russia is able to do things like, you know, sell their oil to India, have them refine it and then have India sell it back to Europe. So there's not, it's not bulletproof, but I guess what, what, um, what they were really trying to do with this is that the West tried to create a liquidity crisis and a balance of payments crisis in the beginning of the war, so Russia wouldn't be able to finance it. That's why they froze, uh, like something like five hundred billion dollars in foreign reserves. Mm-hmm. It was at least half of their foreign reserves. So they were trying to create a foreign liquidity crisis, but it just it didn't it didn't happen it's um you know they they the the russian central bank uh you know tightened things up and they didn't face that liquidity crisis that the the west was hoping for that would put an end to the just the ability for them to continue waging this war and um we
0: we talk a lot about sanctions and we i think we did a whole you know episode on on the topic itself and how much we hate them but if there was like one way to you know i guess try and get russia to stop uh without actually talking to them i guess the economic sanctions was a lever to pull and so the reward there the hope was that they would just go into financial insolvency and not be able to afford to to war anymore um so that's like a like non-lethal way of stopping war um but ultimately it's You know, it comes with a high set of risks. So here's some of the risks that were stated by Rand on imposing those sanctions. So It reads, uh, instituting unilateral sanctions, especially comprehensive financial sanctions, could damage foreign businesses and economies. This could lead to less support among businesses for sanctions in allied countries, and it could lead to reluctance on the part of allied governments to cooperate with the United States. One of the hallmarks of the comprehensive financial sanctions on Iran was that they were multilateral, vastly increasing their effectiveness. Current sanctions against Russia provide evidence that other countries are not as strict as the United States. This divergence might widen if the United States were to move forward without careful coordination. So I did um, a little bit of research on like how, is the, how are the sanctions going because because i was actually curious about this when we were prepping for this episode uh and i found this piece in al jazeera that that was done back in august that i think did a really good job outlining uh, uh like whether or not the sanctions on russia had a big impact on their economy and to recap what we've done you know we've frozen half of the russian financial reserves uh the the foreign financial reserves that is uh we've expelled uh their major banks from swift which is the the you know system to move money around european system that is um we've prohibited russian ships and planes from entering certain western ports and airspaces and uh we've introduced an export restriction on um advanced technology like microchips to russia and we've also placed some embargoes on 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 certain russian oil and um and, and coal and things like that so um an offshoot of this and the, the headlines that people will know about is that more than 1,200 companies um, have either suspended or greatly reduced their operations in Russia. You know, some of the headliners include folks like Apple, McDonald's, Ikea, Visa, MasterCard, and so on. And the efforts, the sanctions themselves, have had some mixed results, um, which I think was pretty surprising for a lot of people. Like I, th- I think us included, Henry, I-, I was fairly certain that they were going to crumble by now. Economically, at least. Um, But GDP fell by 4% in Q2 of this year. Uh, The IMF uh, did update their economic outlook for Russia recently, though, and they said that the GDP would shrink by 6% overall this year, uh, which was less than the originally forecasted 8.5%. It's still a lot, but it's not quite as bad as what we initially expected. And of course, that's only looking at the overall GDP, like certain sectors were hit much, much harder, like uh, auto production, as an example, fell almost 62% this year. Uh, And that's primarily because that industry relies on a lot of finished components from the West in order to operate optimally. Um, So that part makes sense. But it it just seems overall that the sanctions, you know, are not as grim in some respects, at least in this immediate short term. It's still out the window about what's going to happen next year or following years, but especially if this, if this keeps up, but, you know, at at least at where we stand right now, several months in, you know, despite losing more than 30% of the value uh, in the beginning of the year, the ruble has rebounded and it's currently the most or rather the best performing currency this year somehow. Um, So that's really fascinating. Um, And inflation, uh, which is impacting pretty much everyone all over the world, uh, it's down from a peak rate of almost 18% uh, to just about 15% just this past August. Again, that's still super high, um, but there does seem to be some improvement happening there, and it's trending in the right direction. Russia's account surplus is at a record high right now of 167 billion, which is triple what it was last year. This is before they actually invaded Ukraine. I mean, at the end of the day, ultimately, like, these are all just numbers on a spreadsheet, which are important. But, you know, what really matters to Russia is like the quality of life of their people. And, you know, while certain things are definitely much more annoying, like buying cheap furniture from Ikea or, you know, getting the newest iPhone at a market price, like, they they still seem to be getting along kind of fine for now. You know, people are still going out to restaurants and shopping in malls and buying shit, you know, stuff that makes the economy turn. And, you know, they definitely have less money right now, and they have less buying power, but they are still buying. And what these sanctions could also mean, I think, is, like, a return of Russia to, like, in-house production. You know, these sanctions remind them that they can't rely too hard on global markets. And, and I think they they hold a lot of the raw materials that everyone in the global market needs to make those finished goods. So you know, it's, it's within the realm of possibility that Russia comes out of this with at least the foundation of a stronger and more self-reliant economy. Um, that is, of course, up for debate, right? Um, but I mean, the early numbers are in those are the numbers they didn't their their economy didn't fall like a house of cards yet maybe it does later but right now it seems okay
2: i mean they're going to be in recession for the next year most likely like there's not going to be gdp growth in in 2023 of course i guess i mean for now it's just I think one of the big one of the problems I heard uh, a Russian commentator talking about was like food shortages, but like not starving food, but just uh, in terms of like scarcity and stuff that that is uh, an issue. But I think there I think Russia is honestly feeling a lot of the same problems that um, that other European countries
0: are having. Right. uh, And they're not those other European countries aren't getting sanctions on them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. but
2: I, I I still think there's going to be a pretty nasty uh, economic um uh, impact going on in this year. I mean, they're spending a lot of money in this war, but it's going right. to be a nasty economic impact for a lot of countries. Unfor- unfortunately, yeah. Now, here he, here is another thing that I found it I had found interesting. Enhance Russian brain drain is listed as one of the measures. Right, which is brain drain means attracting. I guess some people find this kind of uh, uh, crude. It's like a kind of a crude way to say this. Um, but it means sucking out your
0: brains.
2: (laughs) Well, it's I've some people have said this is kind of this this is an offensive term. Um, but take that. For what it is, but um, it means like you know, encouraging skilled labor to leave a market. The smart people and leaving, you know, the the, the uneducated people, the unskilled labor. Well, like the in Trump market
0: okay. yeah, we're, we're good with immigration, just like we want the smart ones, the good ones, yeah, you know, only those. We want doctors. Um, we scientists. want
2: this person's gonna make the new Twitter. Um, yeah, but so benefits low, cost and risk low, likelihood of success low. So this is doesn't seem that impactful, worthwhile, <laughs> or worthwhile to pursue. But it was it's interesting because now that we're in war, I'm not sure what the immigration laws are right now in terms of. Russians immigrating to other countries i do know that immigrating to russia is incredibly difficult like it is incredibly difficult to immigrate there um i'm not sure what how hard it is for people to immigrate from russia to other countries you meet a lot of russians in brooklyn but a lot of times they're not from russia they're from like Uzbekistan or something and they're just you know they're Russians from Uzbekistan or they're from you know maybe they they can be from Ukraine or they can be from Kazakhstan you do meet a lot of Russians who are um in, in I guess Brooklyn is probably the has the largest diaspora of uh, of Russians in the country or at least one of them but I'm not sure what the how how it works in terms of getting a visa so. Uh, well, but I, I will say that
0: you could probably like go for refugee status or something like that, and say that like um, I'm part of the opposition in Russia yeah. and my life is in danger. But I mean, you know, I'm not certain how how we slot that in in terms of the priorities for refugees. I mean, we we don't take refugees at the southern border for those reasons. We fast tracked a bunch of Ukrainians because I think that that looks nice in the in the press. But you know, doesn't seem like the United States is very um kind in that respect to <laughs> honoring refugees unless it's like a beneficial for them from a PR perspective.
2: Yeah. And when you think about it, accepting refugees is, is probably the most humanitarian foreign policy you can have. Of course. If there's a horrible war going on, instead of getting involved or or prolonging it, just saying, Hey, everyone who wants to escape this war can come to come here right um is is uh or will will even help people escape the war is is the most humanitarian way that you can you could really um engage in a warfare mm-hmm. but um i know people will be like well you'll change the culture of the country but i don't feel like getting into that argument i think no. that
0: those <laughs> are
2: those those are noble things to do now right. um yeah, so I'm not sure if there's like any um enhanced immigration laws and I, I know in Europe or maybe I'm not maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm not even sure how the EU is dealing with this in terms of like Russian immigration, if they're banned or if it's harder. I know that in terms of just traveling, Russians really can't travel to Europe. They have to go to Turkey and then right. travel from Turkey somewhere.
1: Yeah. So
2: I would have to ask somebody on that. But I thought it was just interesting that they listed this. Because there are a lot of educated people in russia and ukraine you have to ask yourself why these countries that have these educated populations you know still are, are poor and it's because of you know the, mostly the corruption now yeah um here's my favorite part and it's not even a measure but it just says in the conclusion doing nothing of although not an active measure on the part of the u.s would also let the Russian government continue its poor regulatory regime, its state control, and wasteful investments, all of which could continue to limit the country's economic weight and military potential. So doing <laughs> nothing is, is an option here. It's like the um, magic Do nothing shell. and let them
0: implode, right? Yeah, just, just do nothing.
2: That's my attitude in pretty much every country outside the U.S. that's adversarial. I forgot where I.
0: What read are you this. supposed to do? Nothing. Just let them. Let I forgot him where I read this. It was like a. It was like a. Either like a management book or like something on 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 like tech companies. But uh, you know it. It. And I'll paraphrase it. It basically said that like companies don't die by homicide; they die by suicide. So basically, you know, when a company fails, it's not because some competitor came in and just totally ripped up, you know, did it better and and you know made them obsolete. Generally speaking, companies fail because they make poor choices and they fuck it up themselves, and that's why they failed. Um, the same, I think, could be said for governments, you know, uh, and Russia is no exception to this. So I, I do find this this uh, part in the Rand article that you that you pointed out to be kind of poignant. Just let them fuck their shit up. <laughs> let them do it to themselves. And there's It'll all happen. sorts
2: of problems there with, with – um... I mean going back to the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean mm-hmm. I mean going back to the Soviet the Soviet Union had a lot of corruption in it. Post Soviet Union had a, a lot of corruption in it. It's just these states have these huge they have so many natural resources that there's there's just so much money to be made here. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much money to be made in these states, which really just fosters it just fosters that type of behavior um, It's not the only reason, but it's definitely the incentive for, for so much uh, corruption. Now, here is another. So we're going to go into geopolitical. The geopolitical things that we're able to do. Um, so, all right, I'm going to read the just an insert of the summary that I thought was interesting. Perhaps the most literal way to extend Russia would be to increase the cost of its foreign commitments. As early as the 1940s, George Kennan, the father of containment, suggested that the Soviet Union was, was already overextended and that the military, economic, and political cost of sustaining its empire would ultimately be one of the factors leading to the reform or collapse of the communist system. Russia today is far less extended than, than the old Soviet Union. Its domestic population is much more homogeneous, with ethnic Russians composing more than 77% of its population. Its external commitments are far more limited, compromising, comprising only small bits of Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, and a larger portion, portion of Syria. It does face active opposition, however, in both eastern Ukraine and Syria. The U.S. has provided limited support to Russia's opponents in both countries and it might do more, thereby driving up Russian cost. Proxy competition of this sort is now new. Is no, excuse me is not new. Indeed, the Great Game characterized interstate relations for several centuries as aspirant global powers clashed over conflicting spheres of influence. The Great Game meaning the Great Game between the Russian and the British Empire in the 19th century when both were expan- expanding into Central Europe. Um, or not Central Europe, um, Central Asia and Southeast Asia. Asia, um, There was a big power rivalry between the British Empire and the Russian Empire over states like Afghanistan. Um, the renewal of such maneuvering marks a return to a form of geopolitical competition that some analysts argue took a brief hiatus after the end of the Cold War, when the U.S. was left as a lone superpower in ideology, and the ideology ideology of liberal democracy seem to reign supreme.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So... Basically, it's making the argument, and, and there's another portion of this of this um, PDF that under under the vulnerability. When it, there, there's a good thirty pages, and just keep in mind, guys who are listening, we cannot go through every single measure here. There's there's dozens of them, and we just don't have enough time. So uh, we're picking out mainly the geopolitical and the and the economic ones. But there there's a there's a portion in the in the chapter where it goes about you know the the major vulnerabilities that states Russia is like the Russia is different than the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was an empire and it was it was overextended. So the goal is how do we make Russia turn Russia into the Soviet Union so they're overextended and fall apart.
0: Hmm. There so was a there's a paragraph. I'm, not,
2: I'm paraphrasing it. I just don't have it in front of me, but it was basically it's like. The goal here is like, how do we get Russia to be like the Soviet Union, where they where they bite off way more than they can chew?
1: Because
2: mm-hmm. right now they're not. But right now they're not but off more than they can chew. Take in mind, this was written in 2018, so this is right. this is forecasting right now. But is mm-hmm. it interesting to see the the forecasting and the suggestions or the policy recommendations here? Yep. Um, four years later. <laughs> four, yeah, four years later, where you know some of it is. I mean some of these the risk scenarios that they bring up are are not playing out. Are are kind right of playing now. out, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's look. So geopolitical cost imposing options. So we have number one, provide lethal aid to Ukraine, increase support to the Syrian rebels, promote regime change in Belarus exploit tensions in the south Caucasus, reduce russian influence in central asia challenge russian presence in moldova so um, we have six different measures i don't know if we're going to get to all of them but we're going to get to the interesting ones i mean they're all pretty interesting but there's some that are obviously more interesting and others and the first one is the elephant in the room providing lethal aid to ukraine where the benefits are rated as high the cost and risk are rated as high, and the likelihood of success equals medium. So if you're just an investor and you're looking at a risk model, usually when the benefits are high and the cost and risks are high and the likelihood of success is medium, it's a That's good not investment. something you buy. It's a good investment. <laughs> are you joking? <laughs> if you'd like to get rich. It's
0: a good investment, <laughs> with high risk. I don't know, <laughs> and only a medium chance of success. Well, high maybe benefits. I'm more risk. I'm more risk averse than than you know, Some vulture capitalists, I guess. What? So what? Are you going to be the guy who who uh, who uh,
2: tries to pursue the Russian a dra- uh, brain drain? Like that's going to destroy no.
0: them? No, I'm the guy that that uh, realizes that the low cost, high uh, reward of doing nothing would work out better because <laughs> they'll just implode. <laughs> well, out of all the, so there's,
2: there's six of them, the riskiest, one, all of them are actually rated as low risk except providing lethal aid to Ukraine and promote regime chain in Belarus says cost and risk are low which I have trouble believing that. I think that would be a bigger... I think a regime change in Belarus would be possibly the end of humanity. Um, But why don't we... So this part, I have this part highlighted as green, so does that mean that you want to take it? Sure. Yeah, I'll take it.
0: Uh, All right, so... I'll read from this. Uh, Expanding U.S. assistance to Ukraine, including lethal military assistance, would likely increase the cost to Russia in both blood and treasure of holding the Donbass region. More Russian aid to the separatists and additional Russian troop presence would likely be required, leading to larger expenditures, equipment losses, and Russian casualties. The latter can become quite controversial at home, as it did when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. I guess what they're referring here to, uh, what us arming the Mujahideen or some shit like that
2: or i understand what they're saying there could definitely be blowback and you can think of a lot of a lot of reasons why there could be blowback um i mean i think Zelensky's in a in a is in a position where he he if he negotiated with russia he would he would be killed like people keep on asking why isn't he negotiating like people from who are more on the um you know, negotiate, like get a peaceful settlement, whatever it takes. They're like, why is Zelensky not negotiating? Well, I can tell you why he's not negotiating. Because if he was negotiating, he would be killed. Like he would not not by I don't the US wouldn't kill him. I think that one of the right wing groups in Ukraine would probably kill him if he started negotiating with Putin. Like there'd be a car bomb on his way to the wherever he was meeting with him. Or he would be shot by somebody in this security council or wherever um he's like an... Inc- like people are like oh he's lying about where he is this guy is probably in the most like dangerous situation out of any world leader that we've right I mean, besides the ones like Saddam Hussein who you know we we took or captured or Gaddafi but I mean like this guy's of life of is cre- in an incredible amount of danger <laughs> from 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 everyone I don't think he can really I don't think he has room to negotiate. Um, right, but I guess I guess the extent of what I'm saying, there'd be blowback for him. I mean, there could be the, a there could be blowback if support stops. And, and let's just say that um, you know the, a lot of the Ukrainians that we were supporting feel resentment or or um, you know feel or are upset about you know not continuing arms or 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 let's just say if we renew like a friendly position with Russia I mean you can think of different things I don't think that's happening anytime soon by the way but there could be there could be that type of blowback but then there's also it could just be controversial that that there's like all these covert operations that are going that that are taking place right now in Ukraine mm-hmm. I think for the most part most westerners in general are uh staunchly pro-ukraine so it's not really controversial as of right now but um even if they're staunchly pro-ukraine it's um it's um you know people people still don't want to get involved or they want they're getting to the point where it's like we just want peace like do whatever it takes like we're tired we're bored we already turned it off right we're waiting for the next war to come on
0: tv well, so let's, let's go over some of the benefits that Rand is saying that would come out of um, helping uh, Ukraine and arming them. So they wrote, two other somewhat more speculative speculative benefits might flow from such a, an expanded U.S. commitment. Countries elsewhere that look to the United States for their security might be heartened. Some of those states might find new reasons to avoid developing their own nuclear weapons. Uh, and also, I'll skip ahead a little bit. Uh, actions by the United States to make good on these assurances could enhance the credible credibility of formal and informal security guarantees that the United States has provided other partners around the world and could reduce their perceived need for their own nuclear deterrence. Okay, Th- this is interesting. So what they're saying is that if we help Ukraine, other countries will feel good about that because we either have a security agreement with them, Right like a formal one, and that would be us showing good faith that we follow up with our you know our word uh or countries that we have informal agreements with ergo, Taiwan, you know uh what were the three pillars of uh of liberty that Mike Pompeo put out? It was like taiwan israel and uh and Kiev and Kiev Taipei uh, no. no. tai- Jerusalem, yeah, and Kiev, tai- right. Tai- right. So, like, other, other countries, like, example, Taiwan might be like, okay, cool. Like, the United States will come to our defense. You know, they'll help us if some shit goes down. And so they won't need—I guess they're they're trying to say that they won't need to find their own nukes. They won't need to make their own nukes to protect themselves. Like, is Taiwan thinking about making nukes? Is that a thing? I don't think—well, Israel has nukes, but— um, They already have it,
2: though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, I mean they've had, they've had nukes for, for decades. Ukraine, I don't think there there is any I mean the, the things that Putin said about them building nukes, I I don't I don't believe it at all. Yeah, I don't buy it. Either. Like I, I think that was just them throwing shit on the wall to justify the invasion. Like I they would mm-hmm. have everyone in the world would have known that they were creating nukes. The Russians would have known that they were creating nukes, concrete right. and would have been like, Okay, we have pictures of this. Right. Not just we drawings. Have we have right. we have we have actual pictures they're right next to each other they would have as bad as the russian intelligence has like the fsb has performed in the beginning of the war like a lot of the spooks kind of were fired because they fucked up so bad mm-hmm. early on um like i i mean they would have they would have known if if the ukrainians were had a, a nuclear
0: nuclear program neighboring them i'm um, trying to think of other uh, what are other countries that we have maybe non like non uh, what's the word that they use non-proliferation informal security guarantees like what are other countries that have informal security guarantees with us that would consider getting nukes because they thought that we were that our performance and our, our support of Ukraine was not sufficient enough to to make them feel good about our informal guarantee with them Such that they would want to create their own nukes. Like, I can't... Try for the life of me, I can't think of another country that we have an informal security guarantee with that doesn't already have nukes that would want to then get nukes because they thought we did a poor job with Ukraine by not harming them. I don't know. Ethiopia?
2: Um. Ethiopia kind of has a deal, informal alliance with the U.S., but not really anymore. Um, they also play nicely with Russia, though. So They yeah. do. And I think they have p- power plants in Ethiopia as well, but I think they're mm-hmm. Russian. So I'm not sure. Actually, I actually have to look more into this, but I don't want to be speaking, uh, you know, uninformed things, but... I mean, I can maybe see that as a potential way because I mean they're at war, but they've they've recently made peace with their um, with their neighbors from the north, Eritrea. But mm-hmm. I mean, Ethiopia is on, on the way of basically splitting. So it's right. um, I don't know. Maybe maybe if Tigray and Ethiopia become two different nations, maybe those, those that could be a potential country. Um, you would think like Armenia would love nukes, right? If I was Armenia, yeah. I would love nukes. Um, but do, do we have an informal agreement with Armenia? N- no, we don't have we don't have a f- we we uh, give lip service when Armenians from California start the protest. We'll be like, Oh, we support Armenia. That's a valuable voting good tis- voting block. And then it's like, oh who cares? They're really not that important. Like that's kind of the attitude of of the US with Armenia. Because a lot of our allies are very close with Azerbaijan um, especially Turkey so it's I mean Turkey's not even really it's like a a super it's like a really weird relationship with the rest of NATO right now Uh, but I guess this is kind of opening up a can of worms that could take another hour to talk about but yeah we're just spitballing the the geopolitical the 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 alliance systems that we have in place are are being thrown for a loop in a lot of cases, and I guess the one solid block is Western Europe and and the West, but everyone else seems to be looking out for their own interest in in terms of uh, anyone outside of Europe. Um, I guess you can include Japan and South Korea in that block, but they yeah, still like, I mean I guess
0: Japan but like I don't ever see Japan going like yeah we're gonna we're gonna make the bomb because we don't trust that the United States is gonna stick up for us well people have talked about I mean Japan has I mean that's not
2: that's a potential scenario like I don't think Japan like J- Japan's thing is like we're, we're nukes so we didn't ever want to do that we know how how horrible it is and um you know there's Fukushima a disaster right so there's there's like a a a real history that prevents them from pursuing them. But if Japan really thought that they were a threat under invasion of China and the U.S. wasn't going to protect them, I think that they would do it. They have the ability to. They have the ability to do it really quickly as well. So (laughs) They
0: certainly certainly know how. They could probably Um, do it faster than any other nation in the world. So Probably. But the the thing is, the question is that Rand is saying that by... by, by doing good on by Ukraine now that it makes Japan not feel like we wouldn't have their back against China in some future escalation. That's what they're trying to argue. I don't see that connection. I don't yeah. think if we, if we, like for example, if we stop supporting Ukraine, I don't think that immediately translates to Japan thinking, oh shit, they're not going to honor our security agreements yeah if anything it's
2: the opposite i think most countries just it's like please just end this right um like let's just get it over with um where were were you at the four thousand warhead new uh arsenal part or below that I, f- I
0: forget below okay um i mean yeah that that's basically what we we're saying you know it's they're they're trying to make the argument that this is by supporting Ukraine militarily now in their conflict against Russia that this is actually a play to uh, reduce nuclear proliferation. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, when it's also this is also
2: um, you know I don't think even Rand has pred- predicted the war to break out in 2019. Exactly. So it's not yeah. operating under the same. Um, conditions, you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. um, I guess what they're saying makes sense at the time. It's like, hey, if we show that the U.S. is a, is a valuable security partner and we're a deterrent to invasion, then countries won't nu- won't need nukes. They just have us. We'll come in. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's the point that they're they're ultimately trying to make. Um, but he, here are the risks that that Rand states on this study. An increase in the U.S. security assistance to Ukraine would likely lead to a commensurate increase in both Russian aid to the Separatist and Russian military forces in Ukraine, thus sustaining the conflict at somewhat higher level of intensity. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the former commanding general of U.S. Army Europe, argued against giving Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine for precisely this reason. Alternatively, Russia might counter-escalate committing more troops and pushing them them deeper into Ukraine. Russia might even preempt U.S. action, escalating before any additional U.S. aid arrives. Such escalation might extend Russia. Eastern Ukraine is already a drain. Taking more of Ukraine might only increase the burden, albeit at the expense of the Ukrainian people. However, such a move might also come at a significant cost to Ukraine and to U.S. prestige and credibility. This could produce disproportionately disportionate, large Ukrainian casualties, territorial losses, and refugee flows. I mean, all of that is happening right now. Right. It might Literally, even all of it. Yeah, like oh, this. This. This is exactly what happened. It might even lead Ukraine into a disadvantaged disadvantage. This disadvantage, disadvantage. Fuck. Disadvantageous. Okay. Thank you, Danny. Some (laughs) analysts maintain that Russia lacks the resources to escalate the conflict. Um, Ivan Mediginsky of the Kiev-based Institute for World Policy argued, war is expensive, falling oil prices, economic decline, sanctions, and a campaign in Syria, all which are likely to continue in 2016, leave little room for another large-scale military maneuver by Russia. According to this view, Russia simply cannot afford to maintain a proxy war in Ukraine. Although given Russia's size and the importance it places on Ukraine, this might be an overly optimistic assumption. There is also some risk of weapons supplied to the Ukrainians winding up in the wrong hands. A RAND study conducted for the President of Ukraine found reasons for concern about the potential misuse of Western military aid. While Ukraine has been tarred by Russian propaganda that claims that it had mishandled Western military aid, the RAND team also found that the Ukraine's paper system for tracking equipment are outdated and vulnerable to corruption. Moreover, the RAND team also expressed concern that absent reforms to Ukraine's defense industry, Western military equipment might be reverse engineered and enter the international market in competition with U.S. suppliers. Ultimately, the team concluded that, concluded the perception of misuses or corruption, whatever the reality is, sufficient to deter donors that might otherwise provide free equipment or supplies and take U.S. or other officials concerned that Ukraine cannot be trusted with high-tech systems. The RAND team also concluded, however, that these problems are, are fixable and offered recommendations to Ukraine on how to o- overcome them. On the other hand, Ukraine is certainly a more capable and reliable partner than others to whom the U.S. has provided lethal equipment. For instance, the anti-Russian Afghan Mujahideen in the 1980s. Mm
1: -hmm. One
2: might imagine an acknowledged U.S. effort to provide Ukraine with weapons of non-U.S. origin, but such efforts likely would not remain secret for long. Furthermore, Ukraine could probably procure such weapons itself on the open market. Finally, if the US were to boast aid to Ukraine against the advice of its principal European allies, it could endanger European support for the Russian sanction regime, which relies more heavily on European adherence than on US adherence. While NATO members located close to Russia, such as Poland, generally take a more hawkish approach to, approach to Ukraine, most Western European governments remain cautious. According to a 2015 Pew survey, 59% of Frenchmen, 65% of Italians, 66% of Spaniards, and 77% of Germans opposed NATO sending arms to Ukraine. Indeed, according to reporting by the German newspaper Der, uh, Der Spiegel, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Philip Breedlove viewed the German government as one of the major obstacles to boosting aid to Ukraine. Oddly Not enough, an obstacle anymore. <laughs> well, they had their strong man there at the time. yeah, Or strong woman at the time. right? Um, oddly enough, the same 2015 survey showed somewhat higher levels of European support for Ukraine joining NATO. That suggestion had a majority support in the UK, Europe, Poland, France, and Spain. However, 57% of Germans opposed this measure, and NATO operates by consensus, which means that that any proposal to admit Ukraine into the alliance would need to garner anonymous support. More vocal U.S. advocacy of NATO membership for new Ukraine would likely strengthen both Ukrainian morale and Russian determination to prevent such development, thereby perhaps further extending Russia's commitments and cost. Such a move would also engender opposition within NATO, detracting from what has otherwise been a rather united front in opposition to
0: Russian aggression. Man, that was a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, well, most most of the shit that they said would happen has happened. A few new updates would be, you know, uh, the, the support in favor of arming Ukraine has gone up by quite a bit, especially from the countries that were holdouts like Germany. Uh, obviously, they couldn't have uh, known that Schultz was going to be, you know, in office and, and, and you know, Suddenly decide that they're going to increase their military expenditure for the first time since World War II. Um, yeah, I mean this, it's interesting. I don't. I don't know that this is necessarily beneficial, though. These are kind of risks because. I mean, on the those data are front, the risks the, that I read. There, they weren't the yeah. benefits. No, yeah, I'm, I'm just a, like I'm agreeing on it. This isn't. This isn't helpful. Um, I guess what's interesting is that. Um, I feel like NATO is kind of in unison because now now we're getting two more members, right? We're getting Sweden and Finland, uh, and that was never that was never on the table before. I feel like they were NATO already, though. Well, yeah, they were NATO. Finland, adjacent, Finland
2: like. actually was not. Finland had a history of of being you know cooperating with both countries, or with both mm-hmm. blocks, the so Eastern and Western blocks. So yeah. it is it is a shift, but there's. I don't know. I don't have the correct words to describe the, the shift in, in geopolitics now, but I don't know. U.S. hegemony has just completely disrupted European sovereignty. European countries just are no longer sovereign countries. They're basically you know city-states under Marcus Aurelius. They may have their own domestic policy. They may have their own, you know, local economic policies, but they do not have independent foreign policies at all. It's all it's the United States, and you know this is. Ha- I mean, this happened because Europe was destroyed, and, and and the U.S. picked up the pieces after World War II. Right. Um,
0: I don't. This happened the, in the, after the last time the Germans and the Russians fought, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: the last time the Germans and the Russians fought, it caused so much mayhem and destruction. That they, you know, the people of Europe were, you know, completely dependent on U.S. foreign aid for reconstruction, and I think it just created this, this relationship of 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 um, that lacks sovereignty. But it's still it's not even it's been a big European governments used to say no to the U.S. The mm-hmm. British used to say no to the U.S. Um. But now it's just, it's very, it's very strange. Like the pipeline incident just really highlights it. Like, come on, stick up for yourself. <laughs> it's like a bully <laughs> who's like, come on, grow stick a up pair for yourself. <laughs> just roll with the punches. Um, It's just weird. It's a weird, it's a weird time. But this is, this is definitely, it's, it's, we're, we're at the watermark. Of like of lack of sovereignty right now, in in um in in Western Europe, and you're seeing a difference between like India and Brazil, and I mean Brazil still has good relations with the U.S. and India still has good relations with the U.S. But the difference is that they're they're sovereign,
0: right? They make, they their, make own their own dis-
2: choices. They make their own choice. Like they're not going to do something dumb because something tells them this. they're gonna do dumb stuff like they do. they're they're both kind of moronic government moronic governments in a lot of regards, but they're not gonna do something like super self-destructive when they know it's self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we I didn't realize how long this episode would take. We're over an hour and a half right now. Um, is I don't know if it's even worth going through. These other these other scenarios, maybe we can just briefly touch on them.
0: Yeah, let's let's just like talk about the the line item, talk the benefits, costs, and risk, and likelihood of success, and just do real quick. What do we think? <laughs> yeah, okay.
2: So let's start with incre- increased support to the Syrian rebels. So I mean, now it seems so like so long ago. Like that right. there a I war in know Syria. That's still a thing, even yeah. though we <laughs> we started this podcast covering the Syrian war, Syria. Right. The Syrian Civil War. Um, benefits medium, cost and risk high, likelihood of success low. Um, I would I would generally agree with that. There's an, and Especially in the time that this was written in 2018, 2019, the Syrian war was already won by then. And mm-hmm. um, the Russians were not going to... You know, the main reason why the Russians intervened was to protect their Navy base. So right. they weren't going to—I mean, you could throw as many crazy jihadists in there as, as you want. They weren't going to ever, you know, be a threat to any right. Russian military Right, the low likelihood of there. success and the medium benefits, right? Um, promote regime change in Belarus. So to me, this is just insane th- that you'd want to do this. Um, so benefits high, cost and risk high. Okay, I wrote put this wrong in the model. So this is likelihood of success low. So I initially read it wrong. It did say high. Um, yeah, this would be this would be Ukraine point 2.0 if if there was a regime change. The, the Russians, I mean, now the Russians wouldn't even be able to probably wouldn't be able to invade. They just have to, to nuke it. I, I don't know what I don't know what would happen. <laughs> it would be an, it would be a horrible catastrophe if there is a as big as a and Lukashenko I hate Lukashenko right I hate Lukashenko I think he is a blithering despotic idiot like I have nothing nice to say about Lukashenko but he Bella Bruce was the route the Nazis first took when they invaded the Soviet Union right they will it's it's more important to them than ukraine the russians they see that as a more important buffer and if there was like a a maiden um you know a 2014 style revolution in there you would see a a really bloody a, a really bloody war
0: like a really it's a really bloody situation um okay I guess the question is could they even like you said, could they even afford to, to be able to go and invade and, and put that down? I don't well, think so. I mean <laughs> there
2: was there was an attempt to do that um about a year and a half ago where it was um you know like a you no know, internet celebrity types were it's always like these internet celebrity types too that are, are the ones who are running for election and, and like holding the the mantle for mm-hmm. these regime changes. Like these, like these cool hip like internet guys. Hey, I'm here to change the government. But then they realize when they become isolated and stuff. You know, these are th- these are these are governments with secret police and who are gonna who are gonna throw you in jail. Right, it's, it's not disappear you. And right? you know, people. I for I don't. I hate responding to this because it like gives a, a notch of credibility to the people who. Uh, you know, try to call us like pro Russia. Neither of us are pro Russia in any sense or any imagination. Not even like close. we always we criticize Russia all the time. We talk about how corrupt it is. We talk about all the problems it has, and we talk about how brutal it is. But the re- the reality is 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 the reality where these are brutal states who are going to take action in response. Like they're going to react to things and do. Uh, nasty shit at the end of the day, and right. you have to be prepared for that reaction. And, and you can't pretend like everything is Chamberlain um, appeasing Hitler. If there was a, if there was like a large scale attempt to do a Maiden style coup in Belarus, everyone's going to be arrested and tortured, and that's basically what right. happened last time it happened. Right, everyone was arrested and tortured. Um. Like there will not so, be there will not be a 2014. In 2014, in Ukraine, they had the muscle to, you know, more of the muscle to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the same muscle in Belarus. There's more Russians there. They don't have like the same schisms, like the political schisms, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, exploit tensions in the South Caucasus um, benefits low. Cost and risk, medium. Likelihood of success, low. So talking about uh, like Georgia. Azerbaijan, Armenia. Armenia. Mm -hmm. Reduce Russian influence in Central Asia. So benefits, low. Cost and risk, low. Likelihood of success, medium. So I guess you could throw. So I didn't read this whole part. So I'm not going to talk about it in detail but i would imagine they talk about kazakhstan of course and didn't we kazakhstan already in, what's that
0: <laughs> didn't we try to, to to flip that
2: yeah i'm not i'm not entirely sure what happened there i don't know if there was an attempt it well it's like comparing these color revolutions to the one in ukraine where it was the one in ukraine was just you know so overt and so so blatant the one in Kazakhstan it really did come off to me reading about it as an pa- internal power struggle between like two guys who who wanted to remain head of states. Yeah, there definitely could have been some something, but I, I I do think the major motivation in Kazakhstan was was um a local
0: affair. <laughs> an event between Kazakhstanians. The Kazakhstanians. <laughs> um but yeah uh, I mean, then well, didn't, didn't radio Scott say that, that i uh, I could be misquoting him but didn't Scott Horton say that that uh this was definitely like a like a the old college try from the US but it didn't pan out well yeah scott scott said that and
2: i think it was i think it was kind of a try but like not not totally like it, i think that there was a significant power struggle a, a significant enough uh Power struggle between Takayev and Nazar Nazarbayev mm-hmm. um, to to do that, but maybe I'm Are wrong. More? Maybe it was total U.S. It was really weird that they went to that radio station and they they demanded a broadcast to Moscow. Right, but honestly, reading about that, a lot of the stories seemed like so. Um, a lot of the stories that came out of like European press. Um, were kind of not they're poorly translated so i need to review that again maybe things i read things incorrectly most of the things that i got from came from the wall street journal they reported on it a lot the okay the last one is challenged russian presence in moldova benefits low cost and risk medium likelihood of success low so I actually found this one pretty interesting. Let's, let, let's touch on it real quick. Because what they're saying is just flipping Transnistria and removing the Russian peacekeeping forces there. So in, in Transnistria, uh, Moldova has like a Russian... Russia was part, Moldova was part of the Soviet Union and there's still a Russian enclave there. And there's Russian peacekeeping troops there. So this... um. I'm going to read it real quick. The U.S. could encourage Transnistria's youth, who according to some journalistic accounts, might be more pro-West than their elders, to push their pseudo-state to leave a Russian orbit. Transnistria's Russophile population and strong institutions, including a secret service still called the KGB, raise questions about this option's feasibility. Moreover, even if, the, even if this policy were successful and Transnistria rejoined Moldova, it could very well be a cost-imposing impos- strategy against the U.S. and its allies rather than on Russia, given that Transnistria is impoverished and would likely require substantial Western aid. <laughs> so they're saying, like, okay, like, we're going to take, you know, their, their problem from them and like this is this is, like they're already extended like the point of this paper was to overextend them not to take out their you know take obligations from them mm-hmm. but you know they have a KGB still uh Bel- just to go back to the belarus thing belarus has a KGB like they still right. have the KGB there they're basically the soviet union still in the belarus like they they're you know there's state run govern you know the government owns the pretty much every Everything. industry yep um the conclusion of this Krasnistia thing the expulsion of russian troops from moldova would be a blow to russian prestige but it would also save moscow money and quite possibly impose additional costs on the us and its allies it might be worth trying at trying as an essentially punitive measure that would be part of a broader campaign to limit russian prestige and, and risk, prestige and influence as discussed in the next chapter but it wouldn't extend russia so it's just a bad idea <laughs> yeah we're getting we're going against the point um i guess you know your best bet in extending russia is ukraine or do nothing
0: that was the option that i liked do nothing remember they said that they'll just you know they're already overextended so just let them implode let or, them kill themselves?
2: Yeah, they're they're basically said like they they already have bad enough economies. it so just let them implode on on their by themselves. Which hey, it happens. The thing is though is that you know the history of the end of the Cold War is still very fresh, and a lot of people credit the victory against the Soviet Union and this is like this you know, a very standard talking point, that the US policy under Reagan was to completely overextend them in Afghanistan and in Poland and, and and um you know um really kind of push their limits in terms of um of um you know, having to put down like popular revolts in, in former states and and you know, uh, in a bad war in Afghanistan, a lot of and also with the addition of all the defense spending as well. And, and and honestly, there's a there's another full chapter on on this in this Rand paper that we don't have time to to go over today about what they can do in terms of defense spending, but it it definitely. Um, kind of operates under the assumption that the policy under the Reagan era of you know um, getting Russia into proxy wars and causing instability in, in Russian in, in uh, Soviet satellite states in, in Eastern Europe w- you know was was the ultimate reason why the Soviet Union fell apart and I mean there there is some truth to it but I think the Soviet Union fell apart because the Soviet Union was always going to fall apart. Right. Um, and it had more to do with with internal reasons rather than, rather than the external ones. But yeah, that's my... Those are my two cents. I agree. Want to wrap this one up? Yeah. Uh, man, I didn't think this one was going to go this long. Thanks, guys, <laughs> for listening to another episode. You can join our Patreon at Bro History or Slack, fuck, Patreon slash Bro History, get access to our Slack, and then um, a really easy way that you can support this show. It is a very easy thing that you could do. If you listened to an hour and 45 minutes of this episode, that most likely means that you enjoyed it and you found it interesting. Do us a favor. Rate and review the podcast if you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple. It is the number one way to support this show. It really helps us grow grow our audience, get exposure. So please just rate and review the podcast if you enjoyed it. Give us a five star. It means a lot. And uh, we really do appreciate it. Danny? Nothing on my side. All right. Peace, guys.
0: Peace.